Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Phone off, Dom? Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, okay, can we go back and talk about the sort of early years of Dom Jolly, first of all, where you were born, where you grew up, and perhaps the long-term effects that that upbringing had and your worldview and how it was shaped by your early experiences in Lebanon, right? Yeah, well, let's start with a real easy one then. Yeah, no, I was born in Beirut uh, <clears throat> to English parents. My, I think my great-grandfather was something in is me. I think he was a British consul in Turkey, something like that. I don't, I'm not quite sure of the story, but basically he ended up being uh, imprisoned in the First World War uh, by the Ottomans that were on the German side of the First World War, marched across Syria, uh, across Turkey to the Syrian border, kept in a crusader castle for the whole of First World War. And then when they were released, they went to Beirut. Uh, so we've been in Beirut quite a long time, like quite a long standing British family. So yeah, I grew up there and I grew up annoyingly just when it all went to shit basically because yeah. it was like Lebanon is the most in fact I've just been back to Lebanon I just walked across it for a new book I'm writing and uh, it is the most stunningly beautiful country in the world it's tiny but it's surrounded by just everyone that wants to go so I grew up in the middle of a civil war so it was kind of a bit weird I grew up in a <clears throat> I went to an English Quaker school near my house 
where Osama bin Laden was also at for a year, at the same time as me. I discovered that when I was writing a book. So when I was six and he was 16, we were at the same school together. That's and, nuts. And I literally, I obviously can't remember him. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. just thought, please give me a school photo. He wasn't like the bully on the playground, <laughs> no, like dunking yeah. people down the toilet. He was going around or... pushing up, at, looking up. But no, I have no memory of that. And I discovered that and I was like, oh my God, please give me a school photo, but nothing. So yeah, it was a bit of a schizophrenic existence because you're living in this beautiful place. You know, the cliche about Lebanon is like, it's an hour to the ski slopes and out to the beach. Lebanese are beautiful people. It's an amazing country, lovely weather. Great but food. A, great food. But there's a massive civil war going on. So literally, I'd sort of, I'd go to school on a horse occasionally because there were no petrol. Uh, we'd like be in the basement being shelled for two, three weeks. We had to... Two, three a, weeks at a time. Two, three weeks. At, well, you'd come up and down, but you'd yeah, be shelled, yeah, yeah. couldn't go to school, couldn't do anything. And then uh, there was always, we lived above Beirut. So every, every day you could hear, it was like a sort of amphitheatre. Everything happening in Beirut came up. And I remember a friend from school in England came to stay and uh we were just having supper like quite normal everyone just chatting away and there's just machine gun firing coming out it's all coming up from beirut so it's miles away it's not miles away but it's like not affecting us and he literally was just couldn't hold his knife and fork and i think you get really weird there because you kind of it's a lot of places i've been to where they have trouble and stuff you kind of have to get on with your normal life so lebanon literally you'd go out to a restaurant and there'd be shells would come in so you just leave your meal and go downstairs wait for it to finish, come back up and start chatting away. And it's kind of a really surreal way to live. I'll bet. But it's the only way you can deal with it, keep calm and carry on. Yeah. It is that, except the problem is you're not calm. And I think that's what I've realised growing up is actually it completely screwed me up. So you I think You think it definitely did? Oh, there's no question. I was constantly in a, in a state of kind of fear, like a low-level fear all the time. Was my dad going to get kidnapped? Was Were we going to get hit? Were we going to be stopped at a roadblock? Like everything could be just taken away at any moment. And then I was sent to boarding school at eight, literally like the poshest boarding school in England. Where what was the name of it? It's called the Dragon School. So oh, like the had, Dragon School. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. So it's we like had a everyone. prep school for Eton and places exactly like that. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we had Radiohead there, Tim Henman, you know, like <laughs> most of the current Tory cabinet. It was all that sort of stuff. So it was weird. And you'd sort of write, you'd have to write, you know, what I did in my holidays. And like they'd be going, we had a terrible time at the Jim Carner, you know. And I'd be like, well, we were like bombed. It was just really weird. So I'd go from this chaotic mad war horrible place but that i loved and it was home so you did feel like at peace to some extent there and you enjoyed the surroundings well, in in lebanon in yeah, yeah i loved yeah. it i loved yeah, being yeah. in lebanon and i kind of almost i think got addicted to the adrenaline because it's never boring like endings and then i'd go to this supposedly idyllic place in in oxford and it was the most evil place on earth like you were boarding and it was bullying and there were people beating you like teachers the news of the world exposed a massive pedophile thing a ring which i luckily wasn't affected by but later so it was kind of insane it was like uh, both places were two extremes right yeah total two extremes and totally nuts and we used to have a write a letter every week home so i'd write a letter going i hate it here and they go i don't think mum and dad want to read that you know so so it's kind of like that film it what you see portrayed honestly, in that film very was close to it very it common kind practice of, i think a lot of those schools have changed a lot now but it was kind of the, this, this was the late 70s. So it was like just those things were still going on. Yeah. Just insane stuff. And they were training you to run an empire, I think. The next school I went to, which was called Halebury, that was set up to train people to run India. And there must have been a moment in about 1949 or whenever India became independent, they thought, fuck do we do now? And then they were just like, oh, fuck it, carry on. Carry so, on. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm fully trained to run India. Because we never know when we'll get it back. Well, you never know. You yeah. know if the job's up, I'm keep looking. You know, man needed to run India, I'm there. But, so. <laughs> so what did your what did your parents do? Uh, do you know what? I still don't, not entirely sure. My dad wanted to be a writer. I think he was deep down a bit of a beatnik like me, but he absolutely wasn't. He had to go, 
He left school, went straight into the war in World War II. He fought in the fleet air arm against Japanese, totally screwed him up. He was a lot older than me. Then he went to Oxford and then he was a lot older than me. So, and he was like living in Lebanon as well. So we kind of never really got on. We were quite distant. And uh, he had to take over the family company, which is a sort of, uh, I think technically they're called shipping agents. So I think right. they, you know, I still, my sister runs it now. I still don't really know what they do. They're basically stuff coming into Beirut port. They help take it off and on. So I just say shipping, and it sounds. So your like sister's like still based out there. Yeah, is yeah, she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it just you and her? Uh, she's my half sister, and then there's a half brother and a half sister on the other side as well. Yeah, right, right. And yeah. in terms of your peer group at school, yeah, obviously, I guess you were surrounded by international kids yeah. of all Kinda walks good. of life, right? Or well, less aware in Lebanon, or yeah, in, yeah, in Lebanon definitely. It was like a sort of multi. It was like a sort of mind your language. It was crazy, and I mean the Lebanese are very. International anyway, Le- uh, Christian Lebanese. I grew up on the Christian side, so they're Maronites, Maronite Christians. They don't see themselves as Arabs. They call themselves Phoenicians. So even though they all speak Arabic, they prefer to speak French, which is really annoying because it means my Arabic's not as good as it could have been if I'd have grown up in the West Beirut where you'd have spoken Arabic. But all Lebanese speak in English, French, and Arabic in the same sentence all the time, show off. So they'd be like, Yanis, yeah, so weekend, I was going. And you, know, you can always tell a Lebanese. And they're incredibly cultured. And they're a real mix of everywhere. So a lot of them have married people from abroad. So there were, I knew Australians and Swedes and Dutch and South Africans. And then there were, you know, there were loads of people around. And then suddenly the war came and a lot of them left. Yeah. Almost anyone who could left. Got out was good. Yeah. I mean, ironically, we used to go to Syria to like get away from the war. We'd go into Syria and go on big expeditions in the desert. And now it's the other way around. All the Syrians are like, there are massive refugee problems in Lebanon from Syrians. So you, I guess, have always had a wanderlust driving you to explore and go on adventures and yeah, has that I always been there? Yeah, I definitely had Wanderlust. Like, I was obsessed with Tintin when I was a kid. That was just my thing. I had a map in my room of all the countries where Tintin had gone to. And I, I literally said, one day I'm going to go to all those countries. And I have now. Uh, and all the people that looked glamorous to me when I was growing up were diplomats, foreign correspondents. Like, I really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And then a lot of my dad's and granddad's sort of friends were quite famous archaeologists people like Leonard Woolley and stuff who went off into uh, into Syria and discover stuff so all all that kind of adventure thing was definitely like that's what I wanted to be and I kind of my humor comes from probably more French than English because I read things like Tintin which is quite weird and sarky and not sarky, yeah, yeah. sort of slightly surreal in a way and Asterix Lucky Luke and then I read lots of weird sort of weekly things in French a lot of stuff I wrote was in French uh and so I think my, my humour is a bit more surreal. That's where it came from. But not that British surreal Monty Python thing. Was Monsieur Hulo someone that oh you were God. exposed to early on? Jack Tutty is just yeah. my ultimate. I mean, he's my total hero. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, in my absolute dreams, I've come close to Tutty in one sketch, which is where in Trigabi, I'm holding a sign saying stop in front of some cars. <laughs> and then they wait, wait. And then I flip the sign around and it says stop again. And I kind of felt Tutty-esque in that. But yeah, I mean, Mr. he's just my total hero. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. So when you were sort of getting into TV, were you looking to get into the com- like comedic side of no. television or what was your break in telly? No, so I, I, did it, I did everything completely the wrong way around. Like normally you do really stupid stuff and then, then you get serious, you know. Whereas I, I kind of growing up, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And then when I left university, I went off to Paris, worked at the International Herald Tribune, which is what you do, and Chicago Pizza Pie Factory. And then I came <laughs> back... And I started working at MTV, and I thought, oh, this is quite good. I'll be. What year is this? This is 1990, I think. Okay. So I'm working at MTV as a runner, and I think, great, I'm in telly. And suddenly I get a phone call in the MTV kitchen, 
from someone and she goes, this is Susan Beresford ringing from Brussels. I go, what? And I'd applied at uni forgetting. Uh, like, what did you study at uni? Sorry to backtrack real quick. Arabic and politics, international relations. Oh, okay. So you were definitely going down that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was, I'm, I'm politics obsessed. Yeah. Anyway, I'd applied to be an intern at the European Commission. I'd forgotten about it. And this thing had gone through and I suddenly I'd got a job. The Iron, the iron Curtain had come down and they had a delegation, which was like an embassy for the European Commission in Prague. And I'd got the job. So I literally went into MTV and said, uh, well, I'm leaving. And they go, oh, you've got another job. I go, yeah. I go, what? I go, I'm going to be a diplomat in Prague. So I drove out to Prague. And Is that in- when it was still Czechoslovakia? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I drove there when it was Czechoslovakia. And I was there over the period when it split. So I was there for oh, that wow. New Year's Day where you just woke up. And suddenly Czech Republic got all the good bits. And Slovakia had just been left with the shithole. Yeah. And it was amazing. So I, I did that. And I, it was just insane time. It was brilliant. And then I came back from there. And I had this amazing thing on my CV, you know, like diplomat in Prague. And so I got a job first for a guy working as research in the House of Commons. And then I worked for ITN as a producer for two years uh, on this show called House to House, which is a real nerdy political show. But so basically, that's what I loved. I loved like the thrust of politics. I loved the excitement of it. But I kind of wasn't very driven. I just loved being in the middle of it all. And I was in number 10 garden when John Major called out the bastards and resigned and said, you know, all that stuff was brilliant. So is it going back to the idea of you are thriving off a kind of chaotic I kind of like chaos. I love being in the middle of chaos, but I'm not, you know, I'm not political. I am political. I've got views, but I'm not, no party particularly represents me. I've got a bit of right, bit of left, bit of everything. I just love the chaos and the buzz of sort of like Z-Lig, of like being in the scene. And then I started mucking about, you know, I just, they'd send me out to get interviews with people and I was just so bored. I'd get the really shit interviews, the little ones, where I'd just go out and say, you know, uh, can you do that and get the quote off them? And I started mucking about. So I got some clowns to fight in the background with Paddy Ashdown. <laughs> and they came back. And so that went out. It was like, oh, a strange thing happened today with Paddy Ashdown. And then I did a thing with David Meller where he was talking about football violence. And I got some mates playing football and they kicked the ball over. And it wasn't supposed to, but it smacked him right in the face. <clears throat> so, of course, that was used. And then suddenly I think they thought, hang on. So you're he, kind of behind the scenes like this agitator yeah, almost. Kind yeah, kind of. And then they, they, they clicked, basically, and thought, hang on, he's setting all this up. So I got fired from ITN. So I wanted to make political documentary, as I was really into this guy called Michael Cockrell, who makes these amazing political documentaries. So I applied to him and various people. And just by chance, my CV went to a production company called, I think they were called Cactus. No, I can't remember what they were called, Rogue. I can't remember what they were called. And, and they were making the first Mark Thomas comedy product. Right. Like the very first shows before it had been made which was like an early Michael Moore. Yeah. And they wanted someone with a political background because they wanted to set up MPs. So I turned up thinking it was going to be quite serious. And then immediately, first day, we took a whole lot of things through a McDonald's drive through like a tank, a clown car, and they had no money. <laughs> so just I started doing this stuff, you know, and I'd dress as a penis outside Jonathan Aitken's house. And I just thought, this is amazing. And, and you they found like, your calling, did yeah, you? Yeah, and they were like, you're quite good at this. And I was like, but this isn't a talent. Like, I just love doing it. I love just sort of stirring it up yeah yeah and then i even had my own little own bit on the show because i said to mark this will be really funny dress up as a schoolboy, kick a football into places and then go and ask for the ball back like buckingham palace and stuff and he <laughs> for him it wasn't political enough yeah yeah yeah. for me yeah. it was funny so we i just dressed as a schoolboy with this guy called dom english how old are you at this point like 21 no fuck no yeah. i'm 30 i think oh, right, 28 right, 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 yeah, yeah so yeah. i've done my 20s yeah you know? yeah and I, i'm just like can I have a ball back you know we did it at number 10 downing street and then he got shot and stuff anyway so all that did really well I got Mark Thomas Comedy Product finished and I applied for a job just on The Guardian saying, do you have a good sense of humour for the Paramount Comedy Channel? And I now found out that they'd been told there was a really good guy on Mark Thomas Comedy Product called Dom and that was Dom English, not me. 
But anyway, so they thought that was him and I got the job and I ended up basically making just lots of weird little things in between the shows on the Paramount Comedy Channel, which eventually Channel 4 spotted, gave me a comedy lab and that's how Trigger Happy happened. Amazing. But the stuff on Paramount Comedy Channel was political. Like That's what I wanted to do. So we did a thing called War of the Flea and this was when Cool Britannia was going on. Blair had just got elected. I stood as a, I set up my own party as the Teddy Bear Alliance and like stood against Alan Clark in Kensington and we were going after Mandelson and we were putting fake statues of Mandelson in near the dome and we were doing all sorts of weird stuff and it was causing lots of sort of odd chaos and having go at chefs and we took it to Channel 4 and they loved it but the woman at Channel 4 Caroline Letty had just made Brass Eye and she said I just can't face more legal shit I just can't I just want something can't you do this sort of stuff but just nothing political about it just stupidity and because I'm kind of poncy and I like politics I think I would have done that sort of show but because she said, I'll give you a show on Channel 4 if you can just do stupid stuff. Well, not stupid, but non-political. That's what I did. More whimsical. Yeah, whimsical. And actually, that was my saving grace because it actually meant I wasn't trying to make a point and I wasn't being satirical. It was just, just go and be stupid and make funny stuff. And pure that's comedy, right? Pure, really yeah. pure comedy. I mean, almost too pure sometimes. It was just, it does this, the whole of Trigger Happy is me. Oh, so anyway, so I make that show. And then I think, uh, so when I'm on Paramount, I get the opportunity to make War of the Flea. But I haven't got anyone to make it with. And cameras almost didn't exist. You know, you had to hire a proper cameraman. Cost a fortune. I couldn't afford that. And there'd just been a camera, literally that month that had come out. It was the first one with a two-chip thing or whatever. You look at the quality now, it's terrible. But it was just good enough to, for a grand, you could buy it and you could use it on telly. It's amazing when you watch that footage back because it does look so gritty, doesn't it? And it's grainy. insane, yeah. And lo-fi. It, it's so lo-fi. Yeah. Yeah, it was called the Sony VX1000 or whatever. Which was was it basically one. just one guy? Yeah, yeah, you have of course. One partner who it's, was kind it's of... It's all it was. And I went to the pub, in, it's called The Engineer, in, in Primrose Hill with my girlfriend. And I said, I've got this amazing chance, but how am I going to do this? And the barman leans over and he goes, I can do that. And I go, what? And he goes, I can do that. Anyway, so we started chatting. And I said, have you, got, have you done this sort of stuff before? He goes, oh, I can use a camera. I'm an artist. So I said, fine. He turned up on Monday. And this was Sam Cabin. Sam, yeah. Sam had never used camera before he being sandwich he's quite autistic he'd gone through the manual and learned how to use the camera although it was only like two seasons in we realized we'd left the microphone on a wrong setting and stuff <laughs> and literally that's how it happened and we just happened to have a really similar kind of almost nihilistic sense of humor it was almost like dry as fuck and it just worked and that's honestly and because neither of us had been in telly i think that's why trigger happy worked we weren't like People who'd gone to Edinburgh and done footlights. And yeah, there was no theatrical background. There was no theatrical background. And in the same way that telly kind of goes and gets stand-ups and tries to put them in telly, I wasn't trying to be a stand-up. So I think it just worked. Also, I'd grown up really loving those shows, which they show a lot in the Middle East and stuff like Candid Camera. Yeah. There's quite a racist one in South, South Africa called Funny People, where they kind of took the piss out of Africans. And it was terrible. But the, the concept of that, the, the, format, whole, yeah. the format, it was always so naff. And I was like, why does that need to be naff? Like, it's such an amazing format and it's real and it's much more skillful than it looks. It's improvisation, which has a terrible feeling here. Like, the moment you say improvisation, you think, fuck, I'm stuck in a lift with John Sessions. Yeah, 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 the roof's yeah, coming yeah. Down. And, and I just thought, well, why not? And then also, because I'm a frustrated musician who can't play anything and I'm an ex-goth, I love sad music. So I remember when we first did Trigger Happy, I was just putting my favorite tracks on, which are all just sad and like... And I remember someone saying on the dogs hitting each other, can you just put some cartoon music on? I go, 
It'd be a totally different. No, not at all. I know. So joke Trigger, Trigger Happy it? was like deep without a meaning. Really. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, you'd find yourself feeling a bit sad, and then thinking, "Why? This is just some <laughs> idiot hitting each other." Strangely so, yeah. harrowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love that about the artist sketches, and you know, I think oh, ev- was, every yeah. stock character in that show is so familiar and instantly recognisable to anybody that spent any time in any major European city, yeah, particularly yeah, yeah. London. Well, I have to say, I, I, I went a lot for street performers. I felt really bad, like for people, <laughs> you know, people dressed up as statues and. But they are people that, I suppose they're just the natural thing which draw a crowd. So yes. for things like Trigger Happy, it was really easy because, they're, they're, and actually we ended up almost taking the piss out of that. In a, There was a thing called, I can't remember, I did something called Mr. Crazy Cat, who was my favourite character. And it was just, basically one of the rules of my costumes was you'd never see the face. You know, it was just always just this anonymous figure. But Mr. Crazy Cat's face, you could actually see. And I'd just stand in Leicester Square and I'd have a big sign. It said, the crazy cat show. And it was crazy. And I'd go, come on, everybody, get the cat excited. Get the cat excited. Start clapping. And then once they were all clapping, I'd just sit down, smoke a bag and read the newspaper. <laughs> because it's kind of that, just all that stuff is so weird. But there was something particularly about caricaturists. They just, every joke in Trigger Happy really ends up with me either running away, passing out, or, or saying I'm having a massive nervous breakdown. And yeah. I probably was at the time. So... <laughs> That guy is kind of an inner expression of my mind, what he's writing. So I loved him, yeah. Where do you think your distaste or disdain, would it be authority or would it be bureaucracy? Oh, it's both. It's I'm, both. Yeah, I'm a sort of pathetic rebel. So going to boarding school, I kind of love the fact that I hate being told what to do. And I think a lot of that comes from Lebanon where just there are no rules. And I kind of love a country. Obviously, I wasn't having to work in it. I was a kid, but... I love a country where you can park anywhere you like. Everything gets, you know, it, everything happens. It's not going to, that's why I can't bear here where you sort of buy a house and you've got a cupboard and you're not allowed to put a shelf in your cupboard because it's a grade six, um, you know, it, it's just insane, that sort of thing to me. It's like, basically, I, I live by the principles of like, let me do what the fuck I want as long as I'm not affecting someone else. Harming anyone else, yeah. yeah. It's a sort and that's of, what was great about the show was yeah. there was no nastiness or mean-spirited. Well, that was the other thing I hated with... Because with, uh... someone like, say, Tom Green, yeah, who was I doing a similar kind... I oh, know, I do no, too. Tom Green was fascinating. But well, he yeah. was a lot more in people's faces, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, my problem, I think, with... And, you know, I'm sure lots of people that don't like Trigger Happy or don't like me would say it's the same thing, but is a lot of the problem with Hidden Camera is that it is often a vehicle for exhibitionists or people who are slightly mentally disturbed just, just for nutters, basically, yeah. to do stuff in public. And if you've got no fear of embarrassment or stuff like that, you can... But to me, it was more about what made me laugh was always I hated authority. And that came from growing up in Lebanon I, and from going to a boarding school where you were told what size your tie had to be. Tight. I was just like, all these rules are so fucking honestly pointless. And, you know, when you've been in a war, I'm not like claiming I'm a war hero, but you're like, what the fuck matters? Just leave me alone. So all those things like traffic warden stuff like yeah. that really irritated me. The park me. wardens were so good the when you go warden, to the old, like elderly couples. Which is the and park warden. So I had trouble with the park warden one. I love that. So the park warden... I can tell you all where all that comes from. So the part warden idea is definitely from the Beano. It's from which yeah, then yeah, became yeah. the Viz. It's that kind of British character. Yeah. And then everyone's like, oh, you're just, you're just picking on old people. Well, firstly, I'd never pick on old people if they were like not compass mentors because it's just not funny. Yeah. But A, old people are just fair games, anyone else. And also if you go into a fucking park, it's old people and yeah. drunks. So yeah. you go for the old people. And the whole point of that joke was to treat old people as though they were behaving like 14-year-olds graffitiing and stuff like that. 
And I just love that. And I, I love... It's subversive, isn't it? Because it's taking that idea that it's only teenagers that do those yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of things. And But also there was something quite, which people I don't think often saw in the old people, where they were almost quite thrilled yeah, yeah, yeah. to be accused yeah. of like, yeah, I've like still, still got, got it. it. I've yeah. still got it. But also, same with the traffic warden. One of the things I really liked was as Brits, we don't like complaining. Like we're just like, oh, you know, but there's just a moment, you know, if you're, if you're parked in a, you know, if you're a, driving a bus and someone hails the bus yeah. and the bus stops at the bus stop and the guy slaps a ticket on you, <laughs> as the bus driver, you just think, right, for once in my life, I know that all the rules are really complicated, but I'm definitely right here. Yeah. And so they kind of almost enjoyed just complaining. They were like, there's no way, I will take this to European Court of Human Rights. Like, I know I'm going to do it. So it was kind of a release for a lot of people, you know. I love the Cub Scout scenes as well because that was just so surreal. And the fact yeah. that people sort of bought into that yeah. was incredible. Well, I think people have a sort of <laughs> soft spot for, for Scouts. I mean, Cub yeah. Scouts don't really exist. I know Bear Grylls has tried to bring them back and stuff. And then everyone sort of thinks, oh, they've all been sexually abused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They all yeah. feel very sorry for Scouts. And, so, and I think everyone, I think a successful trigger-happy joke works where the back of your mind, you've heard about it. So, for instance, uh, what were they called? Those guardian angels that used to appear on the tube. Like, everyone had heard about these guardian angels that were in New York and would dress up and try and stop crime, but they hadn't really seen them. So when I turn up as one, they think, oh, that rings a bell. And same thing with the Cub Scout. Everyone kind of knows that scouts had to get badges for stuff. But, you know, I had no idea how you get your badge. So if you just go up to someone and say, can you, you know, I need to get my badge for erotic dancing. Can you do it? <laughs> They're like, yeah, sure. Why not? But again, what always made me laugh was just the idea of someone going home that evening and then just the wife saying, how was your day? Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, yeah it was great. Actually, bit weird. I was sitting in the park <laughs> and this scout came up to me and asked me to... Who's clearly uh, like yeah, a man. <laughs> yeah, I know. This man scout came up and asked me to judge him on his ero- homoerotic dancing badge. <laughs> and you can see the wife thinking, oh, he's been drinking again like that. You know, I love that. We have to talk, before we move on to all the other stuff you've done, about the phone character. Yeah. Because obviously in the pre-smartphone age, now people on their phones just sort of look down and they're constantly like engaged with the phone, but they're yeah. never actually on it. Yeah, yeah, but that weird, was that time when mobile phones began to just be, for the first time, I think, popularly used everywhere. And yeah. you would always get that obnoxious character, wouldn't you? Whether it was in the cinema or the restaurant yeah, yeah. or wherever trying to let everyone know that their business is so important it's exactly that weirdly i've just been on the world at one today because because the new <clears throat> iphones have come out today and they're, they're they're sort of getting near to the original size of my phone <laughs> and i was talking about how illogical that character was because that was a very separate character to the rest of trigger happy yeah it, it was, worked wasn't it? very successfully for me because most people that hadn't seen trigger happy would know the big mobile guy but it kind of was everything I hated. It was was it a, a blessing bit, and a curse that yeah, one? kind of yeah. because it was a bit shouty yeah. and it's a bit obvious and it's a bit different. I and mean, it did whole, become the most popular and widely known character it's, it's from insane. the show, didn't I it? I mean, in in a guerrilla marketing way, it was genius because the Nokia tune that was used diddly, diddly, used to be diddly, called Grand Vals. Then it became the Nokia tune. So if you didn't change your phone when you bought it, that would go off. And every time that phone went off, that was like a mental stimulus of trigger happy. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah. But the phone. The idea of it originally was I was walking down a street with Sam and there was, there was a, a big mo- there was a mobile phone shop and there was a big display outside and they had this phone outside and it was fucking heavy. So we just nicked it. We just thought it was funny, nicked it, went on the bus. We were like pretending to it. And I got to Oxford Street, which is where our office was. This was like two years before Trigger Happy. And we're walking down Oxford Street and there was an Australian DJ called John O'Coleman and he was being interviewed on Oxford Street. So I was sort of always trying to make Sam laugh. I was like, we weren't filming it. I was just like, 
standing in, in behind the shot and I'm pretending to talk going yeah no no I'm behind John O'Coleman no moron and then we ran off laughing and that made us laugh and then we forgot about it and we just literally put it in the office and it sat in the office for a bit and then when Trigger Happy started I remembered this character and I said oh that'd be quite good and actually it was not about phones although that was the time when people so they'd gone from big brick phones the 80s and the uppies and then they were getting smaller and smaller to the and smaller, little flips weren't to they? the flips yeah and then, and then they were now, of course, they're getting bigger and bigger. It was just before screens. But there were always those people on the train who were like, let you know and turn everything into their office and people yeah. in the cinema and all that sort of stuff. And it was half letting you know how important they were, half just like, just shut the fuck up. It was yeah. really irritating. And obnoxious. And obnoxious. Yeah. So I kind of, that was the character. But really the phone was more about a way to interrupt things that annoyed me, like classical music, yeah. theatre, yeah, yeah. all those sort of places where... You it's very stuffy. Yeah, it yeah. allowed you just to say what you thought. It was like a sort of, if I'm going to be really poncy, like an oracle. Mm-hmm. So it was like someone sort of talking to the audience going, this is rubbish. Yeah, that, yeah. That. So it was a bit like that, really. But then in hindsight, people go, oh, my God, and it was an amazing, you know, uh, it was an amazing take on the mobile phone generation. And I was like, yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. But comedy is a lot like that. I had probably the weakest joke I ever did in Trigger Happy was me dressed as an old man pushing a pram and I let the pram go down some steps. And honestly, I'd just run out of ideas and I had to fill a, a gap. And then, then people said, oh, that's a bit like uh, the untouchables, like that. And then the Guardian called it a, um, a marvellous reworking of Eisenstein's Potemkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the I was famous like, montage scene I'll on the steps. have that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a nod to my yeah, cinematic yeah. hero, well, of course. Well, I'm a yeah. huge Eisenstein fan, yeah. <laughs> so no, that was all good. But... um. So the, no, the, the best thing about that joke as well, Dom, is the sign-off line at the end, the chow. The chow is what, it's like the cherry on top of the cake, that well, is. Well, chow is just, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> that's what that type of person who has that kind of a conversation would probably say, isn't it, at the end? So of the I suppose what was, yeah, chow, yeah, what yeah. was nice about the joke, you know, and again, I hate analysing a joke, but if I really think about it, even though I don't like it, because it's what people expect that I still do all the time, it's just that. But there was the fact that you've got a scene, and if you know what's going to happen, there's the anticipation, because you just think, all right, I know he's going to interrupt this, when's it going to happen? Then there is that moment of interruption, which is amazing when everyone just stops. It's that bank robbery moment where everyone just stops. Then there's me actually commenting on what's going on, which you shouldn't do. So it's like, no, I'm at a theatre. No, it's just rubbish. Carry on. Which again is another joke. Or I'm 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 at a restaurant. No, the food's awful. Like one of those Nouvelle places. And then finishing with a wanky chow yeah. like that. And then there was always just that walk off or <laughs> just walk off and just think, please, no one hit me, no one arrest me. But it was, Sam and I used to call it a bank robbery thing. There is this theory that if you're in a bank rob, if you rob a bank, you have to take control of a room. So if you go in shouting and you fire into the ceiling, everyone stops and everyone gets very tunnel vision as well. They just stare at you. So Sam could be quite close. They never looked. You oh, just of course, yeah, because away. it's like, a, what's the term in magician's? Linguistic it is sleight like of hand, isn't it? It is it's sleight like of a, hand, exactly. Physical... And people just don't, they get absolutely you know, focused on you. It's like a fight or flight thing. So yeah, there's a lot of psychology in that sort of thing that was quite interesting. I mean, it was almost creepy, but there were moments where we'd set something quite big up in a street and Sam and I would look at each other and just think, this is amazing. Like This is a normal street here. And we know, it was almost like being sort of shit God. You look, yeah. like, we're about to change this street. And do something. Is that a rush? Is, oh, it's such a as rush. As a performer yeah. for you? Yeah, it was such a rush. And unfortunately, one of the big problems of Trigger Happy was the rush because people don't realize that, you know, people go, oh, did you write Trigger Happy or did you have writers? There's no writing at all. It was all made up on the spot. It has to be because how could I know what someone else is going to say? 
And really, it was all about making Sam laugh. So often the camera shakes because it's Sam laughing. And uh, <laughs> Did you ever break character and burst out almost laughing? Almost never. And it's actually, never on screen, but I no, wonder if you I, ever I had moments. I don't think I ever did. I did once, and then I pretended to cry. It was the only way I was like, <laughs> right, to get it. out of it, yeah. And the reason I didn't is because when you're, you come up to someone as the character, you're absolutely fine. You know, you're talking like this. But if someone suddenly goes, are you dumb jolly? Yeah, then the, suddenly the ruse is up. The, yeah. the terrible emptiness of your life faces you. And, you're <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. and recently I did one where... Uh, Can you oh still God. do it now anywhere no, in public? I did a new trigger. Surely you just get recognised everywhere now, I did a new trigger. Right? A lot of people did recognise me. But, you know, there were people that didn't and you could... You know, we did quite a lot of prosthetics, but there was one case where there's a bloke sitting on a bench and I've got a guy in my ear and I go, right, I'm going to the bloke on the bench and I sit down next to him and I open a can of beer and I'm just about to go into... I can't remember what the what the joke was, the bloke looks at me and goes, you Tom Jolly? And I go, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, what are you up to nowadays? I go, just drink beer on benches now. <laughs> and he just stared at me like that. And you could see him thinking, oh, this is awkward. And then he got up and left me and he tried to give me some money. <laughs> Dom and Jolly's took, fallen on hard times. And I took the money. I couldn't, did, yeah, I, didn't, love it. I just didn't want to admit that I was yeah, yeah. doing a joke, but it had fucked up. So I just <laughs> took five and said, thank you very much, mate. <laughs> so I love that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One gag that I absolutely adore from the first episode of what was the season that you did after Trigger Happy? Well, that was my favorite show, which was World Track Your Mouth. Yeah. Yeah. The first, I think it's the very first Oh my God, are you going to name my favorite gag of all time? It's the one one? with the gigantic towel on the beach. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I do like that That's perfect. It is funny. So that, yeah. So World Track Your Mouth was basically, I'd I'd had enough of Trigger. Like it was so... uh, I guess it's got a shelf life, right? There's a certain... Not really. It was just, no, that's what everyone says, but no, it was just so exhausting right? right because every single time you approach someone you have to get the balls not balls but you have to get the adrenaline up to approach someone so many times nothing funny happened so you'd have to undo it do it again and then you'd get an it's amazing fuck, right yeah and you'd get an amazing joke but then would they sign the release and it went on and on i mean we shot it took nine months every day filming for each series of trigger happy 
I was just burnt out. It's a pregnancy period, isn't no, it? No, really. Each yeah. season. And at that time, I hadn't learned the golden rule in show business, which is never make a decision when you just finish something. Like, I should have just gone away. Yeah, you need to shelve it, get perspective. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, when we finished it, I said, I want to do this at Channel 4. And they said, no, we want more Trigger Happy. And, of course, I should have just said, fine, I'll give you one in two years' time. But I was like, no, no, no. So I went off to the BBC, did a chat show. Which what was no that, one... the Dom Jolly show? This is Dom Jolly, this which, is Dom which Jolly, no yeah. one understood. I thought it was really clear because I was wearing glasses, that it wasn't me. It's like a parody of the chat show, right? Yeah, but yeah. everyone just thought, oh, because I'd been in every scene in Trigger Happy, but they'd never actually knew who I was. Yeah. And in this, I was a complete arsehole, and they just thought, oh my God, this guy's an arsehole. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I've got it Thinking it's the around. real you. Think it's the real yeah. me. So I had like pages in the mirror going, is this the worst questions ever asked on a chat show? Or I was asking Eamon Holmes, what time do you wake up? Because that was the whole point, I don't care. <laughs> but anyway, so I had that completely screwed up. So I thought, fuck, I've got to put a banker in at the BBC. So I said, all right, I'll make you another hidden camera show. But I want to go around the world because I love my traveling and stuff. So I did World Shut Your Mouth. And it started with, I'll get to the beach one. But my first idea was, and this is where I got so, I was so up my own ass. I was doing pure comedy. I thought, wouldn't it be funny? We had this joke when we we're in the van driving around. We'd see something clearly beautiful. And we'd all go, that is shit that really is shit so i thought well let's just take that to the massive level so the yeah. bbc and the said, taj mahal yeah. And, yeah i said i want to go around the world to the to literally the seven wonders of the world and i want to go to india i want to drive to the taj mahal i want to get there at dawn which we did and we waited till the first person comes in and they're standing in front of the taj mahal with me and i go oh taj mahal and she goes yeah kind of ethereal isn't it and there's a long pause and i go that is shit and walk off and I was so up my own ass. Like, you'd think you're in India. So film, like, 30 other scenes. I was like, no, 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 no. This is only funny if all we do in India is that. And then we went to China, Great Wall of China. I still, <laughs> literally, looking back, can't believe that we were so did that. But I still kind of stand by it as a kind of, you know, we fucking went for it. And we did it, anyway. And I remember bringing that back and showing it to the BBC. This was going out on BBC <laughs> One. And I said, this is what I want to open the show with. And there was just... Just the most terrible silence. It was just awful. But the one you're talking about is we went to Cannes. And I love, you know, the old idea of Germans are first on the beach. Yeah, you know, with yeah, their towels. yeah. So we literally waited. <laughs> it was four in the morning. We got onto this beach and we'd had a flag made. I think it was the actual German flag made into the world's biggest beach towel. It was like, it was massive. It was about the size of a tennis court. And we just put it right on the main beach in Cannes. And then I was dressed in... No, it was a lederhosen, wasn't it? No, and I, uh, we just put a ball and a, towel, a ball on it so <laughs> yeah, someone was there. Yeah. And then we just sped up the whole beach filling up. And no one went on that That's towel. why That's I what, love it. Because but, it's a, an observation. It's like that it's kind France. of psychology like, in test, England, isn't it? I would have told you no one would have gone there. But in France, I would have thought they'd have burnt it. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. And there's one moment where a kid kicks his ball and it goes on there. They spend a good 10 minutes deciding what to. Anyway, finally, when the whole beach is full, on I come with a plastic crocodile dressed in lederhosen. And it's a bit of a shit joke in the end. It's like the Germans have got the beach. But yeah, it, was, it, was, it was ambitious for that. My other favorite one for that series, which again, I just fucking love, is I had this idea. I used to get ideas occasionally and just write them down and not really know what they meant. And I had this idea, which just said frightening Eskimo. It's all it said. And I thought Eskimo, I know that's the wrong word, it's Inuit, whatever, but just in my mind, Eskimo, I knew what I wanted. And so we went in the end, I didn't do any research, we just, three of us flew to Newfoundland, which is an island off Canada, part of Canada, and I knew it was icy and stuff. And I remember getting to the place and the guy said, what's your reason for visiting Newfoundland? And I said, I'm here to frighten an Eskimo. He goes, firstly, sir, they are Inuits, and secondly, we don't have any here. And I go, 
oh. <laughs> so we check in and we go into St. John's, which is the capital. And then we just get in the car and we just drive. And we drive for three, four hours out into the, it's like the Falkland Islands, middle of nowhere. And the cameraman's going, what are you looking for? I, go, I don't know. I just want someone ice fishing. And honestly, it was like, God, we came over a hill and there was this massive frozen lake. Right in the middle is a guy sitting there looking a bit like the guy in, um, in uh, uh, what's that? Kenny, you know. Uh, oh, South Park. South Park. Yeah, yeah, you know, with, the, with the hood the big, up. With yeah, the like fur. the park yeah. of fur thing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I can't fucking believe this. So we park the car. I get right, here's what's going to happen. Cameraman, you get to the side there, long lens. I'm going to go all the way around. And I had some symbols with me. I had sort of thought it through. And basically, I was just like, I've come all the way here. Please don't turn around. And there's just this wide shot of me creeping up slowly behind this guy. And I find, I go, please don't turn around. I finally get right behind him, smash the cymbals. He jumps. I run away. We get in the van. We drive back to St. John's. We get on a plane and we fly home. And that's Amazing. It. it was fucking brilliant. <laughs> and I just, I love the idea of that guy again in the evening. I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he wasn't an Inuit. I'm sure he didn't live in an igloo. But let's say he did. Yeah. And he gets back to his igloo. And Mrs. Inuit says, how was your day? And she, he goes, the strangest thing he goes, happened. it was really weird. <laughs> like... I was fishing, you know, and this, so I love that, you know, so. <laughs> What's been some of your favorite reactions from the public to people that you've involved in scenes? Has there been any that really stand out that have just been so gold you couldn't have hoped for any better? Uh, you see, the thing is that what I'm after, I remember when the first Trigger Happies came out, one of the, one of the reviews was, this is ridiculous, no one reacts, because it's not candid camera where people go, ooh, I just wanted people to go with it, really, or put up with the idiot. Yeah. So I suppose it's, 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 it's when someone just, well, I mean, the best one I can ever remember is, is these two old ladies. We went down to Somerset, it was in the first Trigger Happy, and I just had an idea for an old sea dog, which was a bit like Tintin. It was like a sort of Captain Haddock sort of thing. And so I put on this sort of yellow sou'wester and a sailor's cap. And a little pipe. And a pipe, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so we're in this place called Paulot Weir, and Sam goes, what's the joke? I go, I don't really know, but I'm just going to go and just be a sort of bullshitting fisherman, really. And Sam goes, well, look, let me get down and I'll film. Just let's try one for sound, you know. So we get down and, and there are these two old ladies standing there. So I think I'll just riff on them. And of course, they were just the best people ever. And thank God Sam filmed it. So I just went out. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, hello, ladies. How are we? And they go, oh, oh, look yeah. And they were just classic British sort of, have a cup of tea. And then, so in the end, I started going on about how, yeah, I lost my wife out there. Yeah. And they go, oh, did you? Oh, poor thing. You should have a cup of tea. I go, and my dog. You know, and just this long story and then told them I was a homosexual. And yeah, all yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just didn't bat an eyelid. And in the end, we invited them to, because we, we had to get everyone's address and stuff. And we invited them to our rap party. Amazing. At the end. And I'm still not quite sure they understood. I think they thought I still was a homosexual. Sea like a documentary. Who'd got a telly show. <laughs> yeah. But they were like, oh, you've done very well. <laughs> I loved all that sort of stuff so i love reactions like that and then my other favorite joke which is the one i was hoping you'd bring up because it's in world shut your mouth and it's the one i love the most is we found a tourist information place and it literally just said information and so i wander in and the woman says she's in it's in belgium and she goes can i help you and i go yes i was wondering if you could i'm here on a, a holiday with my husband and uh basically we have a kitty of 120 euros for the four days we're here now if the croissants at breakfast are six euros each and the petit four are nine euros and both Ian and I have had four, how much does that leave us for the remaining three days? And I'd ask you to show your workings. And she was just like, what? Didn't know what was going on. And what was brilliant was in French. She didn't think I spoke French. She turned to the person next to her and go, this guy's a fucking idiot. And yeah. turned back and goes, I'm sorry, and did that again. So I love those sort of 
bits where someone just totally um, you know, just I can't explain how good it is, but it's just you know when you've got one, it's just a dream. I imagine that, like we said earlier, it must be the best feeling, the best rush, because you're in it and it's real, isn't it? It's and I mean, anything it's, can happen. It's it's honestly so exciting. It's unbelievable, but it, it's such a sort of intangible thing because a people don't realise how difficult it is to get because when you do it properly, it it looks quite easy. Oh, they of don't course. See well, all that's the, the art form, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but they don't see all the times where you fucked up with yeah. it. And you don't realise how, I mean, it's just incredible. You're getting this amazing piece of theatre, you know, and that's why it sounds so poncy. Because in America, and this is why I've got an issue with it here, what we do, hidden camera, hidden camera is kind of a bit shit. It's, you know, it's, it's candid camera, it's Beatles about, or it goes into whose line is it anyway? And that word improv is John Sessions, you know, well, no problem with it at all, but it's that kind of thing. Whereas in America, like all great shows I like, Parks and Rec, Curb Enthusiasm, Spinal Tap, that's all improv. A lot of that was just all a page, let's see where we go. And that's what I really love. And I've had no opportunity to develop it here because there's nowhere to go with it, which is why, in a way, I do lots of reality shows because reality shows are the only place where I can riff. Is, that, can, is that the draw for you? That's well, the, it is. Yeah. And, and also, I love, I, I'm not a TV snob. In the same way that music, I think my only great thing about music is I can love Kylie Minogue as much as I love Nick Cave and they work together so that works of but, course yeah but, great. <laughs> uh, you know so I, I have no musical snobbery whereas i think people with great music taste often sort of when you tell them who it is they go oh, i can't like that whereas i have no snobbery in that and in telly i have no snobbery i'll watch any reality show i mean name a reality show i haven't seen i love them and i kind of love them because i think they're in the same sort of family as what i do you know when you meet the people that put you on it they're called they're casting you and I go, well, they literally are casting because... Based on what you're going to bring to the equation, Yeah, but right? they have no idea. That's what's interesting. So they're sort of doing what I'm doing. They're casting me and thinking, right, here's the comedian, here's... But once they've put you in there, they have no idea. what the f- They've got no control. And that's kind of what I do as well. So I, just, I love reality shows. Tell me about your time in the jungle with Sean and <clears throat> with everybody else that was in there. Well, you see, it was amazing because I, I, I loved I'm a Celeb more than any other show. I think I loved I'm a Celeb. I loved it because it was condensed. I loved it because it had that element to it where even if you're Richard Branson, you couldn't have that experience. Like, I love that thing where you just never get to do that. There were 300 people working on that show, sort of New Zealand SAS members at the end of the camp. You'd step off the boundary and they'd just come up and go, back you go, and stuff like that. All that weird stuff. So they weren't messing around. No, and the fact, you know, you're in Australia, you're testing yourself, you're going to lose a bit of weight, and you're with this mix of people. I was in the jungle with Britt Eklund. You know, this is a woman who was married to Peter Sellers, and uh, and Rod Stewart, all these people, you know, it was insane. The stories. The Do you get much time to bond in that way? And nothing from no. Me. She didn't tell really? me anything. <laughs> oh, and God. Britt Eklund just didn't give me any stories. The only good story she told me was that she jogs backwards three miles every day because it's what Mick Jagger does. I was like, oh, okay. But meanwhile, fact. Yeah. We, we had Nigel Havers, who was the man in all reality shows who has never seen the show before, just goes on it and just literally was constantly with a thousand yard stare of panic. And so they'd say, tomorrow you will face the Tunnel of Doom. He goes, what do you think it is, old boy? I go, I've got a feeling you'll probably be buried and then they'll drop four million cockroaches. I think, monstrous, monstrous. <laughs> and then Sean, who didn't say anything for the first three days, like literally clinically sort of shy, and then slowly came out of himself. And not only was just funny, but that word street smart. So, yeah. so it's a bit patronising because he's not street smart. He's fucking smart. He's sharp. And he's so kind, honestly, just amazing. And then it culminated in a moment when just this, it was like, I thought Lebanon was bad. And I'm in a fucking, I'm in a, in a, in a prison, like all night with a hole where they're dropping rats and shit through. And I'm thinking I'm suffering and they drop a snake through and it just bites Sean on the 
hand he just rips the he rips it up. he's hard as fuck <laughs> he said he wanted to just kill it I was chatting to him at the Q&A we did but he's like they just wouldn't let me no, because they wouldn't let him. it's a TV it's just show. unbelievable but my favourite moment of Sean was that we had <laughs> Gillian McKeith who was just you know the worst ever just yeah. this absolute nightmare woman and uh, I woke up early one morning and I looked up and Gillian McKeith used to wrap herself up in her sleeping bag so she was totally sealed and Sean was sleeping above her and I woke up and I looked up and everyone else was asleep and then I looked and Sean opened his eyes he goes alright I go alright and then he looked round and he saw almost, he didn't have a watch, but it was almost like he was, he was clearly doing this a lot. He got this long stick out of his bed, poked Jillian McKee. She absolutely jumped like that. <laughs> he went back to sleep and he'd clearly been doing it like every four hours. And so she was just like driving him mental. And then there was Lembit Opit wandering around, dating a cheeky girl and, and telling us he was going to be mayor of London. I mean, it was totally insane. but Bizarre, I right? I loved it. And, you know, I knew Stacey Solomon was going to win the moment we went in. She's like the perfect story. You know, it's like, ugly duckling and i'm saying that in a nice way who's got a great voice and she's the nation's sweetheart but since she's come out i'm like why has no one put her in a fucking musical production of my fair lady i mean she is eliza doolittle but there you go uh, let's talk about the book that you worked on because i think that travel is where you're most in your element and that book was i guess which one the dark tourist one uh, and yeah. you must have well, let's just go in straight and talk yeah. about that there's obviously a netflix show called that oh, and you must be aware that. that that is an outright yeah it rob, is a, like, it's a total rob. I mean, I suppose it comes back to what we were talking even about. Even to the title. It's, <laughs> yeah, I know. Have you it, done anything about that? Have you sort well, of? Well, there's nothing I can do about no? it. You know, because dark tourism as a concept uh, was a was a guy, this guy called John Lennon. He was an academic, and he wrote not the John Lennon, <clears throat> and he wrote it. And you know, it was called dark tourism was a concept, but it was only an academic concept. And I read about this because I've always, I think it goes back to when I, you know, when I was younger, and I really liked the idea of travel and adventure, but. I get really bored on beach holidays and stuff. And I always liked going to weird places. And I especially liked going to places that people thought were weird or were dangerous, but weren't because Lebanon most of the time was perfectly safe. But I'd come here and everyone would go, oh, you've been in Lebanon. I go, yeah, I'm pretty tough. So I heard about this thing in Guyana. And Guyana is like, it's the only English speaking country in South America. And I remember doing a, a show where I was pretending to be, uh, I was, it was a funny phone call show. And I was pretending to be someone in prison who just won the lottery, and when he came out, he was going to travel the world, but he didn't want to go to any of the shit countries. So he's ringing up all the embassies to sort of get them to pitch their country to him. <laughs> and what I loved about Guyana, I said, what, what is there in Guyana for me to do? And he literally, the guy went, eh, it's just snakes and swamps. That's about it. <laughs> so even Guyana doesn't like itself. And it's famously the place where they had Devil's Island, which is where Papillon was based. And also it's where the Jonestown massacre happened, where the cult, 900 people went with this cult leader and, they all ended up committed suicide and drinking this Kool-Aid. So basically, it's a dark place. And the Minister of Tourism in Guyana uh, obviously said, we need something to encourage people to come to this thing. He suddenly said, well, hang on, why don't we turn the Jonestown, site of the Jonestown massacre into a hotel, like a theme hotel? And the Guardian wrote a thing saying, oh, it's a terrible example of dark tourism. And I remember thinking, I wouldn't mind staying there. you know. And that's what kicked me off. And I suddenly thought, that's what I'm going to write. My book's called The Dark Tourist. And so I went skiing in Iran because uh, I'd seen in a dent. I, I mean, I gr grew up skiing in England, in Lebanon. So I didn't think it was that odd skiing in the Middle East. But Iran just was a perfect place because everyone just thinks Iran is batshit crazy in a desert. And it's neither. Like It's most. It's pretty westernized and American, right? But that's what's ways. insane about Iran. Most, I mean, Iran's technically not the Middle East, but most Middle East countries are a sort of very loosely a batshit crazy population propped up uh, ruled by a sort of western puppet yeah. and iran is complete opposite it's got a batshit crazy islamic government 
but most of the population are like just want to live in Los Angeles, drive BMWs, incredibly artistic, <laughs> yeah. very like cultured people, an amazing place. And the Shah was big in, in skiing. And so there is this ski scene. So I went skiing there and that was just amazing. I mean, it started badly. Like we, I flew there with British Midland. I got taken off the plane first time ever by what must have been English Secret Service or MI6 asking me why I was going to Iran. Because of you as a celebrity or just you as a Brit? I have no idea. Right. I, honestly, it was the first, at first, you know, I've been to much weirder places than that. I've been to North Korea and stuff, but didn't have it. Um, How was that? Let's talk about that after, yeah, yeah. after this. But anyway, so I, I, I just said to them, I'm going skiing. And, you know, they're like, yeah, whatever. Like I get, no, I genuinely am. So anyway, we get there and I'm quite nervous about landing in Iran and we get some champagne on board. So I do it and suddenly there's a bit of turbulence and I pour champagne all over myself. So literally, I, my first moment in Iran, I'm going through like immigration and there is literally a sort of cartoon nasty muller reading my passport <laughs> i'm stinking of alcohol so it's terrible <laughs> but i went skiing and you know it was amazing like i met all these people there and i went to pizza parties where basically you meet young iranians and they ring her for a pizza and a guy turns up and he's got a 1.5 liter bottle of basically moonshine you get absolutely smashed uh women and men used to ski separately in iran so they had a big slope a big fence down the middle women on one side men on the the other but as my guide said to me mullahs don't snowboard so when we went to the top everyone just mixed and stuff it was an amazing time and then i went to north korea which was still single-handedly i mean everyone's going to north korea now but this was 10 years ago still the weirdest place i've ever been to in my entire life i mean bar none because anywhere else you go it's either not as dangerous as you think it's not dangerous north korea unless you're an idiot but it's it's the only place where genuinely there's no you know there isn't a a, a pizza hut there isn't a uh, a Starbucks. There is no Western influence. Anywhere else you go that's under a repressive regime, if you get away from the guides, people come up and talk to you. North Korea is like a cult. I mean, they all wear little badges of the leader. They have no access to any outside information. There's no internet. There's nothing. And it is absolutely insane. And it almost became the only way you can go into North Korea is on an organized coach tour. And the only people that want to go on that sort of thing are exactly the people that hate the idea of a coach tour. They're all like, hardened travelers so you've got a whole lot of backpackers who've done the world on this coach tour being taken to things like the museum of agricultural lathes and scythes the dear leader's mother's tomb and it was so awful that it was almost brilliant in a land and everywhere you went <laughs> you'd go to the only golf course in 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 pyongyang and you'd get there and they'd tell you how the dear leader rocked up one day and guess what nine holes in one you know it's insane should have been there yeah is it one of those places where they're distrustful and suspicious of outsiders and travellers, or do they literally just not care? Well, this is what... Are actually, they so sort of like this brainwashed is, that This is like... one of the things I learned about North Korea. It's a phenomenally evil regime, and they're a nasty bunch, but there is a lot more to it than that. I mean, uh, North Korea is known as the hermit nation, and they've always hated foreigners, but for good reason. Like, even in the sort of 1750s, 1850s, American ships were trying to steal trade and do stuff there. They were then invaded by... Uh, they, they were then invaded by the Japanese. They had fights with the Chinese. I mean, and then they had the Korean War, which although their fault, they've just had a constant, any encounter they've had with outsiders has never gone well. And they're trapped between China, Russia, all this, and they've never fitted in. So really, they've just kind of withdrawn into themselves and thought, Batten down you. the hatches. No, literally, batten down the hatches and I've got a nuclear weapon. And I kind of definitely get that. But um, so I don't really know what's going on now where he's trying to, you know, I mean, the Trump thing's a complete waste of time. He's He's, played Trump but the thing about them sort of a bit of a rapprochement with the South South Korea and stuff it's a really interesting country it's amazing what about the have you been to the Congo have you been I there been to the Congo so I, I, I watched that show Parts Unknown you know the oh, Anthony yeah, Bourdain yeah. show incredible Bourdain. show okay and... so there's good Congo and bad Congo right there's big Congo which used to be Zaire and then there's 
the <coughs> Republic of Congo. So basically, the, the rule in countries is anywhere that's called democratic is a shithole. So North Korea is the North Democratic Republic of Korea. East Germany was the democratic thing of Russia. Congo is democratic Congo. If it says democratic in it, it's anything but, and it's awful. But there's good Congo and bad Congo. So there's massive Congo, which is the capital is um, Kinshasa, and that is batshit crazy. And then there's slightly better Congo on the other side. So it's the only place where two capitals face each other over a river. You can see them, Kinshasa and Brazzaville. And Brazzaville is slightly better. So I went to Brazzaville because I was doing a book on monsters. I was trying to... Did you do that? Is that out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember it's reading Scary about Monsters ago, and Super yeah. Creeps. And, and I knew I'd never find a monster, but it was more about the sort of people and places you knew. It was like being Tintin, really. I went to the Himalayas and tried to find the Yeti, yeah. which is about the only one I believed in, actually. Really? And in Congo, I went because there's a thing called the Michaelian Bembe, which is supposed to be this sort of dinosaur thing called Blocker of Rivers. And it was in this perfectly round lake called Lake Tele, right in the north of Congo. And that was, I think of all the places I've traveled to, that was the most scary. And I was the most out of control. Basically, I ended up in a, in a three canoe days down a river, which always sounds great, in a village, trying to negotiate with this village for them to take me to the lake. And I was on my own. And they got no crew, obviously, or anything. No, no, no. Just for a book, the, so the it's whole just point of this you. when I did my travel books because dark tourist coming back to, I'll come to it in a sec. Anyway, so we negotiate literally, and there's a port parole. There's a guy I speak to. He then speaks to the the you know from, so we don't talk to each other. It's like an agent. You know? Yeah, yeah. And anyway, long story short, we all agreed finally, but I was running out of time, and they all celebrated by drinking this gin, and they went so ballistic that a guy attacked me with a machete and had to be tied to a tree by someone else. And he was the guy that was... It was just beyond, you know, like anything I'd ever had. I was like, if I get out of here, I'm fucking not doing this again. <laughs> but the whole point of my travel books, which was Dark Tourists and Scary Monsters, was I was so used to celebs or comedians saying, oh, yeah, go on, send me around the world on a, on a jolly, basically, literally. And I just... I really wanted to prove my travel chops, really. I, I kind of... I was writing for the Sunday Times. I've won some awards for travel writing. I wanted to really... It's a different thing. If you go with a crew... You're always with the crew and you're kind of, it's a different vibe to if you go on your own and just throw yourself in. So that's what I did with Dark Taurus. And of course, fucking stupidly, you know, then I, I knew it would be an amazing TV show. And uh, someone had just pitched it for me in America to Netflix. And then weirdly, two years later, it comes out with someone else. So, but hey, that's show business. But they totally nicked that off me and it makes me so fucking angry. I can't speak. I'll bet. Yeah. Do you find a lot of that in your industry? A lot well, of uh, plagiarism you know and... Looking back on, on me, uh, I now look like a serial complainer, actually, which is kind of <laughs> terrible. But I've had three... Let's set the record straight, Don. No, well, I've had three terrible opportunities for it. When I was about to leave... When I was about to leave... When I was at Channel 4 and finished Trigger Happy, I, the next show I wanted to make was called 100 Things to Do Before You Die. And it was going to be like the wrong person had been given that show. So instead of going and parachuting, it'd be like lock yourself in a fridge and see if the light really goes out and then all oh, look the cure in here. It's like that kind of stuff. And I pitched it to Channel 4 and they loved it. And they even set up a website asking people to send in, a, uh, sending in ideas. And then I left and I went to the BBC. So I started making that show at the BBC and suddenly I opened The Guardian. I never read The Guardian, but I keep seeing The Guardian. And the people who'd been doing that were now at Channel 5 and they said, look at our new spring season and it was 100 Things to Do Before You Die. So I had to cancel the show I was making at the B because theirs was coming out for me. So I was fucking livid with that. And then there's Remy Gaillard, who is a very funny French guy who does a lot of stuff that I find amazingly funny. He pretended to be a, don, uh, what's it called? The, um, the Nintendo racing. Yeah, the, yeah. Mario, Mario Kart. Kart. He did a real life Mario Kart yeah. in Montpellier. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but he stole so many of my ideas. And he said when Trigger Happy came out, 
I saw him on French TV saying I'm very influenced by Don Jolin, and he knit my snail thing. I mean, all the. I, but I, d- I kind of thought, well, flattery is nice. He's taking it. And then someone just recently, there's a big problem in France with them going to America, literally taking stand-ups routines, translating into French and just doing them in France because there's no copyright law in comedy. And uh, so there's a big deal in France at the moment. And some guy made a compilation of all Remy Gaillard's stuff and put them right next to my originals. I had no idea. He'd done it on an industrial level. So I was really pissed off. But at the end of the day, you just got to let it go. But I did... What really pissed me off was he knew this was about to come out and I didn't realise that. And suddenly out of the blue, he contacted me and I liked his stuff. And he said, oh, do you fancy doing a collaboration one day? And I said, yeah, okay. He's like, and you've then, got to write the ideas though. No, 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 well, it wasn't that. And then the next day, this story came out. And of course, the people who did it said, you know what happened? He's then defended himself in French press by saying, what do you mean? Don Jolly and I are doing collaboration. I thought, you sneaky little frog bastard. Yeah, so that's that what is sneaky, isn't it? And then the dark tourist happened. But it does just look like I complain constantly. But... <laughs> I mean, the good thing is it means I probably have some good ideas, but I'm just not very good at business or getting stuff done. But Dark Tourist really pisses me off because that, you know, Dark Tourist is me. Like, that is what people link it to. It's a fucking hugely successful book. It did me a lot of favours. And, and it kind of now, it's now been cheapened by that. And the fact is that show is not very good. No, it's not. And that's what really irritates me. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's shit. But, you know, so I've just done a new travel book, which is called, well, at the moment, it's called The Hezbollah Hiking Club, which is a bit of a clickbait, but... um. And I basically, there's a thing, there's the, one of the world's most unused tourist attractions. It's called the Lebanon Mountain Trail. And they basically, Lebanese, trying to get tourists in, set up this 27-day walk from the Israeli border in the south to the Syrian border in the north. So I thought, right, I'll do that. So that's what I did. And it, it was amazing, like the best thing I've ever done. And it's the first proper, solid travel book I think I've written, rather than bits on different countries. And uh, it was pretty amazing. I mean, literally, you were like a sat-nav mistake away from wandering into syria and stuff like that and amazing stuff going on there so i'm literally just finishing that this week so i'm quite excited about that and you're working currently we're in the edit room right now you're <coughs> you doing are. a brand new is it a series or a one-off special what are you doing or can we not talk too much when about i've done it? the new trigger happy so which went out last year on all four but no one watches all four i mean literally it's not even four.com or I don't know what it is. It's like... Oh, are you literally just doing the music? That's what you're doing in here? No, I'm doing the so, international version for yeah, it now. So that, that yeah, went yeah, out yeah. and, you know, had an amazing soundtrack. It did really well. It's, yeah, yeah. It was all four's biggest... Do you bring in the iPad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, the one thing I wanted to do was no... I wanted all new characters. I thought yeah. there was no point. But I kind of, much as I hated the mobile phone, I kind of had to do the mobile phone because phones have changed so much. Yeah. So the phone now is obviously a big touchscreen and it's got <laughs> things like Tinder on it. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, got, yeah. I can FaceTime, so I had me live vlogging my food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were so many different things you could do on it. It was brilliant. <laughs> so And that went really well. It was all four's biggest, it was most successful uh, commission. It did big numbers. But lots of people, it still annoys me. are like, oh, you're ever going to do another trigger up? You go, like, I've just I've done a done whole it, series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's life. So that's now, I've just sold it around the world. So we sold it to about 16 countries around the world and it's going on Amazon Prime in the States. But the problem is, one of the joys is choosing music. I've got an amazing soundtrack for it. done yeah. that yourself always entirely, done it myself. Right? Yeah. It's my favourite bit. And it costs so much money to use music abroad. Uh, you have to put a sort of library music on. So for America and for everywhere else, I'm having to which is what I'm doing today. That's what you're doing in here, It's yeah. putting some, frankly, quite shit music. A little bit of your soul is just getting chipped away. A large is it? amount of my soul. Yeah. You know what? There's not much soul left in <laughs> business. Yeah. And tell me about the podcast, um, Earworm. I guess it's the same sort of concept as some of those pranking the public <coughs> ideas behind Trigger Happy. Well, right? no, but it was more that 
uh, audio. It, it was more that I'd accused everyone else of nicking my stuff. So, so I thought, fuck <laughs> it, I'll just nick, I'll nick off phone jacker. Because yeah. uh, a lot of my, all the people who made Trig Abbey went on to make phone jacker. Okay, so yeah, most yeah, of my yeah. crew went on to there. Right. I've never met, met them, but they apparently were very similar and similar vibe. And uh, I've always liked uh, phone calls because I'm quite lazy and you can just do them from where you are. And it's a dying art form as well, I think. It is a dying art form. And I was obsessed with the Jerky Boys, who were the, the, these people that used to work in the MTV press office in New York. And actually a lot of Trigger Happy came from Jerky Boys ideas. And a lot of famous bands, Pablo Honey was Radiohead's first album that came from Jerky Boys. And they were the sort of thing that bands would listen to on a tour. And it was quite rock and roll, that sort of thing. And I really loved those kind of stuff. Victor Lewis Smith did some amazing ones as well. So I really wanted to do it. And I, I, podcast is a great way of doing it. So I just thought, well, you know, while I'm in the edit, there's loads of time where I've got downtime. So we just started making phone calls and recording them. Called it Earworm, which doesn't really make sense, but I love that term, Earworm. And then I got my favorite artist. He's called Baby Bird, who's Stephen Jones. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knows from You're Gorgeous, yeah, yeah. which is a kind of anathema to him because it's his big, it's his hello, the, the mobile phone. phone. Yeah. And actually that song is not about You're Gorgeous. It's a really deep and dark song. And Stephen Jones basically just sits in his basement and produces about five albums a month. I mean, he's like Prince. And he's Super prolific. Amazing. And anyway, but he doesn't do much. So I got him to soundtrack this. So he sent me a whole lot of weird stuff. And so it's a lot of weird phone calls that we then just have this soundscape. People have said it's a bit like Chris Morris's Jam or Blue Jam. I don't know which one it is. I didn't listen to that, but I, I, someone played it to me. And again, it's like, fuck, okay, it is a bit close. But there are no original ideas. <laughs> That's but it, I haven't right? heard that. Uh, yeah, it's not bad anyway. And uh, so it's basically just really weird phone calls mixed in with, with some genius from Baby Bird. So that's gone out. We've done a couple of seasons of that. And then I'm just about to do a spin-off series of that where I want to get celebs in. And I just want them to hand me over there. Because it's a horrible thing if you're on a chat show with people and you get really pissed. You start going, right, who's the most famous person on your phone? Yeah, yeah, you try yeah. and out-trump each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got so many weird numbers that I must have got <laughs> people and I'm pissed. And I think, when would I ever ring Johnny Depp? Like, I've got his number. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, hang on. So everyone's got that. So I'm going to sort of ask them, give me your and phone. And you're going to start pranking celebrities we'll... with celebrities, are you? Yeah, exactly. Amazing. And see what we do. Amazing. So I'm going to call it Give Me Your Friends or something like that. So I think that's going to be really good. I love it. Because one of the things... So many people are afraid to kind of, uh, you know, ruffle the feathers of celebrities, I think. So that I idea is... It's a bit is... late for that for me. Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I did lots of... Do you of have stuff. any celebrity nemesises? What do you mean? Do I have any feuds? Yeah. Oh, God. Is, got is, so there, many. is there any out there that just never forgave you for something or just oh, have so a be in their I bonnet? Mean, Johnny Vaughan hated me. I, th- I think, I w- you know what? I mean, I'm just someone that doesn't keep their mouth shut. And I- I'm really not an unpleasant person. But I kind of hate. I just. Say well, it. the more uptight they get, the more you're likely to poke, right? Is it not like really. that? Not really. I'm no? really not trying to poke anyone, actually. I don't like, you know, I mean, you can see from my humor, I don't actually like making people feel bad. Yeah. I just. I just say it as it is, like, yeah. which again, I sound like fucking Katie Hopkins because we can all say it as it <laughs> is, but you just choose not to. But I just, it seems to me sometimes you're not supposed to say anything about anyone. And I'm like, well, you know what? You behave really badly. And I, I, there were people that I didn't, I'd heard things about or didn't like. Johnny Vaughan and I had a rivalry because when we were at the Beeb, we were both had moved to the Beeb on, on, on similar contracts. I can't remember why, but I used to tease in all the interviews and say, when I did my spoof chat show, I said, well, I want it to be a bit like a Johnny Vaughan character. So actually, I wasn't really having much of a pop at him, but he got really sensitive. Yeah. And it ended up with us both launching BBC Three, and he, he was launching and refused to have me on the show. And I was <laughs> locked in a lift, which was very weird. Who else hates me at the moment? I mean, just loads of people hate me. And then on Twitter, I tend to, to, twit, to tweet drunk, which is never good. The law is, if you're rude about someone, you almost invariably then meet them the next day, and they always turn out to be really nice. 
So I need to think before I. What speak. do you think of the internet? Because it does give the the voice to the people that perhaps shouldn't always have a voice. Well, you see, that's a terrible <laughs> thing to say, isn't it? I mean, obviously, you know, there are loads of people I wouldn't give a voice. I wouldn't let lots of people travel if I had the choice. But that's such a, in a way, it's an incredibly freeing experience. Why the fuck should there be any certain amount of people that are allowed to broadcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone should say what the fuck they want. Yeah. My problem is you're not supposed to feed trolls. I yeah. totally go for trolls. Yeah, to you me, like feeding them, right? Well, I don't feed them, but I like to fight them. Because, yeah. I mean, most of them, you can just get them on grammar, basically. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of ridiculous how upset they get. They can't do your and your. Do you get on with Ricky Gervais? I imagine you two have quite similar Ricky and I started. Approaches. I knew Ricky before he was... Uh, you know, before he was Ricky. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, we got on really well, actually. And yeah, we have very similar views in dealing with trolls. We have very similar views on religion and yeah. animal animal cruelty and stuff like that. So very much so. Yeah, I do agree with him. Although he's got slightly bigger uh, bigger audience than me, but it won't be long, won't be long. And uh, anything else going on that we can talk about or discuss? Uh, I've just done best show in the history of the world, just as in dream show. I got approached by Warner Brothers, which is always a great sign when you see a Warner Brother thing. And it said, do you like beer? Like, you just think, well, that's, that's a great question. So I've just gone <laughs> around the world uh, doing a show called How Beer Changed the World, which literally you couldn't, I mean, it just sounds like a blag. And uh, it was amazing. I did it with Ollie Smith, who's the wine expert on uh, This Morning. Amazing. And I have to say, I don't really watch This Morning. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't aware of Ollie. Saw him on This Morning, wears flowery shirts, going cheers. And I thought, I'm going to hate this twat. But actually, it turned out to be as dark as I am. And we got on brilliantly. And so, yeah, that was amazing. So we went to... Russia, China, What America. was the show you did a while back where you did oh, that something kind of amazing? Well, I loved Happy Hour. I mean, Happy Hour to me was too early. That was a great show. The whole point of Happy Hour was uh, we did a, I did a show called Dom Jolly's Excellent Adventure where they asked celebs to go off and do, you know, their dream adventure. And so they had, I can't remember what they had. They had <laughs> uh, Vinnie Jones wanted to go to Mongolia to fish for trout and uh, Minnie Driver wanted to go and swim with sperm whales. All a bit boring. Anyway, Macaulay McCulkin yeah. had medical issues and fell out so at the last minute they asked me what i wanted to do and i said oh, i want to go back into syria where i went on adventures so we went on one of that and that's when i found out that i went to school with Osama bin laden and that did really well on its own so sky came to me and said we love this travel stuff uh would you like to do more and i said yeah i would and they go what do you want to do and i said well i'd like to do that sort of stuff a bit like dark tourist and they said oh well you know ross kemp's got that kind of bit sewn up at the moment is there anything else you're interested in and literally we sat there for ages one of these tv meetings and i finally went well i could drink and they were like, that's it. It was like there was the genius. So anyway, I, I went around the show investigating cultural attitudes to alcohol. And the whole point of that show was long way around had just happened with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. And I was kind of slightly taking the piss out of the whole travel genre because the whole point at the time was transparency and telly and trust. And yet the travel show was still one big lie. Yeah. You know, you'd yeah, see yeah. Michael Palin would go, we've, we've got to get the train in Alexandria at 8.30. Otherwise, we miss the whole thing. And they just get it. And then you get this beautiful shot of the train leaving, you go, well, hang on, who the fuck took that? Now, we all know that that happened. Or you meet, you know, you meet your fixer. We all know the producer just introduced you to the fixer in the, in the hotel and then off you go. But actually, it's like, I was walking through the insect market when I bumped into Georgia, you know, all that shit. So I just wanted to take the piss out of that. Because really, what are you going to learn from me and my best friend going around the world getting drunk? People make alcohol, we get pissed. So a lot of it was taking the piss and we had dream sequences and we had lots of homoerotic dreams. <laughs> and unfortunately, that it just wasn't a show for Sky One. But it did so well on Sky One in the repeats. They just kept playing it over and over again. So it was one of those shows that after a year, everyone had seen. Yeah. But I'd love to have made more of it. I, I wanted to do a show called Dom Jolly's Bad Trips on drugs. But 
I think thankfully that didn't happen. <laughs> My friends in Dirty Sanchez, so I do a lot no, of this kind of stuff I remember with those them. guys. And they, they chased did... me around an edit once. Did they really? Yeah, they were trying to find me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know them. Yeah. <laughs> so they did after Sanchez broke up, the two main guys, Pritchard and Dayton, did a, yeah, yeah. a season called Get High. Oh. And it was a similar sort of thing to your show, only they went and tried like the indigenous drugs. Like licking to toads and stuff. Ayahuasca and yeah. toads the and things like that. Though, yeah. You know, the real truth is watching people hallucinating is not you know, they're normally just vomiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. normally at night, so yeah. it's like in night vision. It's not that gripping. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, my wife said no to that, probably wisely. Does she support everything you do? Do you ever get the moment where she goes, well, maybe you shouldn't do that one, Dom? Is she kind of on not, the same well, page as you? Yeah, I don't think she's ever really, you know, she's Canadian. So, and my shows have never been out in Canada, actually, of all places. So when I go back and I talk to my in-laws, they're still not quite sure. I remember having to explain to them when I met them what I did. <laughs> and, you know, you end up going, so they go, so you just shout into a big cellular phone. <laughs> I, yeah, that? and that's 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 <laughs> comedy, you know. So, I, you know, I don't think they're overly proud of me. And my kids are now at the age, you know, eighteen and four, seventeen and fourteen, where they, you just don't want your dad running around as a squirrel and stuff like that. Final question: It might be a bit of a you know a long-winded topic, so you Excellent. don't need to go too far into it. But as someone who's travelled the world and seen so much of the variety of life, yeah. What do you feel about the sort of homogenization of culture that seems to be happening almost everywhere around the world at the moment? Because it's a real shame, isn't it, when you go to these beautiful, old, you know, historic, amazing places and then you just see like, you know, fucking McDonald's or... And even I, here in the UK, like the high street's obviously dying totally, it's, out. And, it's the thing that irritates me probably the most in the world. And actually, it's exactly what led me to do Dark Tourist. But I had an issue with it because actually my whole point was about the only places in the world where you can do proper travel still in the sense that you're not next to a Starbucks, next to a KFC. You know, there's no Wi-Fi. Uh, the only place you can do that tend to be places that are either no incredibly cut off yeah. or places that are actually, unfortunately, under, like, really horrible regimes. So it's like a real bad choice because you can do this amazing travel and have this incredible experience, but you're aware that, in a sense, you're being, and it's one of the issues of dark tourism, you're being a bit of a sort of grief tourist. You know, it's all very well to go to North Korea and think, isn't this amazing? But these people are actually fucking living under it so I think when you go, you have to sort of be aware of that. But I think because I love politics so much and I've read loads, I, I kind of feel I am doing that. I'm not going there just thinking, hey, isn't this funny? It's not, frankly, Dirty Sanchez in North Korea. You know, I'm going there with a view to the sort of politics about it. But that is an issue and it's the thing I can't bear the most. And you're quite right, the homogenization of, I mean, I can't bear the, we're losing our high streets. But frankly, we lost our high streets years ago because every fucking high street it's just a series of chains. It's chains that are a problem. Dave Gorman did an amazing show ages ago where he tried to go across America using only non-chain companies. It was really difficult. So yeah, I think that whole globalization, and that then leads into things like Amazon and super companies becoming bigger than countries and not paying tax. And we Can, can, can we fight it? Can we reverse the tide? Or yeah, do you think can. it's gone too far? You think we can? Yeah, I think we can, but I'm not sure how. I mean, the, 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 the way to do it is local. And actually, weirdly, when I did the beer show, that's one of the things that's happening in beer. Like beer became yeah, huge. craft beer, isn't it? It's, Massive yeah. globalization. But the beer I loved, like you went to the source. I went into the cellars of the, the of Pilsner Urkel in, in Czech Republic, where once I did try and organize a piss up in a brewery. And I just, <laughs> I put signs all up around Pilsner saying, piss up, brewery tonight, 6 p.m. <laughs> and then sat there, no one turned up. But I went there and the guy gave us like the lager straight from the, and it's before it's been pasteurized, before it's had any chemicals in. And honestly, you haven't drunk beer like that it's a different drink and of course because beer is global it all gets these chemicals in and sent around the world and that's um, what gives you the hangover isn't it and it's exactly what gives you the hangover and more and more beer is coming back to what it used to be in germany every town used to have its own brewery you'd go with your jug you'd fill it up 
it'd all have to be drunk within three days. And that is, that's the future. I'm saying like a hippie at the end, but yeah, it is that. It's, it's go local. Amazing. Uh, Don, what a great chat. Thanks Thank so much you. for coming on the show. talking. Sorry about that. Um, no, I really, that's exactly what I want you to do is come yeah. on and talk away. And uh, I really enjoyed kind of getting an insight into, you know, the, the mind of Don Jolly. Thanks Thank so you. much for all your great work over the years. And um, <laughs> keep doing what you do. Thanks. What do you want from me? It's not how it used to be. You're taking my life away. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 